Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you've not got a Bible, just put your hand up and one of the stewards will be happy to hand one to you. 1 Peter chapter 4, and that is on page 1120 in the church Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll come to that in a moment. When you've got a big event on the horizon, it's massively helpful to know how you're meant to live while you wait. While you wait on this event coming, it's really good to know what you're supposed to do in the intervening period. I mentioned in the interview that uh, I'm a student again at uh, Edinburgh Theological Seminary, and this time around, as I've become a student, I've discovered these things called course handbooks. And uh, course handbooks are massively useful, I've found. Uh, they tell you when your exams are coming up. Uh, they ten, tell you when you've got assignments due. Uh, they tell you what modules you're going to have to complete, uh, what the recommended reading is going to be. Really helpful stuff as exams loom on the horizon. The same is true in family life. I remember when uh, Noah was uh, about to be born, our uh, youngest child, uh, we went to classes to help us to prepare for his impending arrival. They told us about uh, the importance of breathing. Uh, and they taught me how to help my wife to breathe. Uh, they taught us about what to put in the, the bag uh, to get ready for the trip and to make sure you always had that bag uh, with you in case the birth of Noah came sooner than expected. It's massively helpful to know what you're meant to do in the waiting period as you wait on a massive life event. And the letter to 1 Peter is written to help people to prepare for a future event. A much bigger event than uh, exams or the birth of a child. Uh, these people are waiting on the imminent arrival of the Lord Jesus coming back. Our passage uh, last week began with the words there in verse 7, the end of all things is near. And Peter wants his readers to understand how they're meant to live with Christ's return on the horizon, with the end of all things being on the horizon. Peter's readers are exiles. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1. He calls them foreigners as well in chapter 1, verse 17. These people are mostly uh, Gentile Christians who'd been scattered all across uh, different provinces in Asia Minor, which we call uh, Turkey nowadays. But on top of being physically exiled, uh, these people were also spiritual exiles. You see, in chapter 1, uh, Peter also makes clear that for Christians, uh, home is not here. Home is heaven, and that's what we're waiting for. Peter goes on to talk about an inheritance that is being kept for them in heaven. An inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. An inheritance that they would only receive when Christ comes back. So these people are scattered physically as they're scattered abroad. Uh, they're, they're exiled physically, I should say, as they're scattered abroad. And they're also spiritual exiles as they wait their future home in heaven. And though heaven is going to be indescribably amazing, Peter makes clear that life on earth now is going to be hard. Uh, he describes what his, Peter, uh, what his readers are going through as suffering grief in all kinds of trials. He talks of Christians being accused of wrongdoing. 
and receiving beatings and threats and fiery ordeals. Peter's point is that such persecution and hardship is the normal Christian experience. This is what Christians are to expect while they live in exile and heaven is still on the horizon. It's what we're to expect because Jesus Christ, our Savior, is our example. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I'm really sorry about that font. That was not my, uh, my choosing, but um, hopefully you can still read the, the passage there. The Christian experience of suffering mirrors in some small way the suffering that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, experienced as he walked this earth. And the question is, how are we meant to live in the time that we have left on this earth? How are we meant to live when heaven is still on the horizon? In these circumstances, Peter could have instructed his readers to retreat, to, to go underground, to withdraw, to live in isolation until Jesus return. He could do that. Suffering is hard. Threats are not nice. Accusations hurt. He could have done that. But that's not what Peter does. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you see what Peter is saying? He doesn't want his readers to live invisible lives as they wait on Christ's return. No, he wants them to live very visibly. He wants the Christian-hating pagan world to see his readers' good lives and good deeds so that these haters would turn to God and give him glory when Christ returns. And then he goes on to describe practically what good lives and good deeds look like. He talks about how Christians should live in relation to human authorities and governors. He tells slaves how they're meant to live in relation to their masters. He tells wives how to live in relation to their husbands and husbands how to live in relation to their wives. And then he describes how Christians should live in general in the world around them. But what I want us to consider this morning is this. What about the church family? If you're a Christian here today, how are we meant to relate to one another as we wait on the end of all things? Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's read verses 8 and 9 together. 1 Peter chapter 4, page 1120. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Just keep your Bibles open at that point. We began this series on this little part of 1 Peter last week, and we saw in verse 7 that prayer is meant to be a key part of life together as a church family in these last days. But Peter now moves on from describing how we're meant to relate to God in prayer to how we're meant to relate to one another in the church. 
And verse 8 tells us that we're to have a love that is deep and forgiving. That's our first point. As we live in these end times, we are to have a love that is deep and forgiving. Verse 8 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the primary way that brothers and sisters in Christ are meant to relate to one another with heaven on the horizon. And this is a major theme in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says, love one another deeply from the heart. It's almost the same thing that he's saying here. Chapter 2, verse 17, love the family of believers. Chapter 3, verse 8, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Peter is adamant that love must govern all aspects of our relationships as a church family. How we speak, how we think, how we act towards each other. Now I think you've got to smile at Peter's use of the word deeply, don't you? The sense of the word deeply here is to be at full stretch, uh, to love until you're fully stretched, uh, to love sacrificially. That's what Peter's got in mind when he uses this word. That's how Peter wants Christians to treat one another as they wait on Christ's return. And that's because Peter knows the human heart. He knows our tendency to do just enough. Like the person who knows about a particular need in a church and could do something about it, but just gives a kind of token amount and spends the rest on stuff that they don't really need, stuff that they could do without or the person who comes to church or a Bible study just often enough to keep people off their backs, but not enough to really invest in people and really love them and get alongside them. Or the person who does come to Sunday services very regularly and very faithfully, but never gets beyond the small talk, just keeps it superficial, doesn't really care how people are really doing. That's not what this passage is describing. Peter is calling for deep love, not shallow love. Shallow love is not really love at all. Shallow love is a pretense. Shallow love is fake love. God's word instructs us here to love each other deeply. Like the family who shows love practically by taking someone in who's between homes. Or the church member who doesn't take another holiday trip so that they can do a camp or a mission trip. Or the person that says, I'm praying for you. And they really are. And they follow up with you and see how you're doing. Or the person who spots somebody on their own and makes a conscious effort to go to them rather than speaking to the same old faces. Or the person whose home is always open and you don't need an appointment in two months' time to go and see them and share what's on your heart. We're barely scratching the surface. There are tons of examples that tell us what deep love looks like. Countless examples of how deep love can be shown within the context of the Christian church. Any way that you're fully stretched in love, any way that you're loving a brother or sister sacrificially, that's what Peter's got in mind. That's how Peter wants Christians to treat each other with heaven on the horizon. 
And you see, we need this deep love if we're going to do what the end of verse 8 describes. The end of verse 8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. What does love covers a multitude of sins mean? Does it mean covering up sin? Does it mean sweeping sin under the carpet? Absolutely not. Uh, The same expression is used in Psalm 85 verse 2. And when it's used there, it's describing God's forgiveness of the sins of his people. Uh, So the covering of sin here is an expression to describe dealing with sin properly. Uh, Forgiving sin, not downplaying it, not glossing over it, uh, not diminishing its effects and its harm, not making light of it. Peter's point is that we need to love one another deeply if we're going to be able to forgive those who sin against us. And the end of verse 8 is describing the ongoing pattern of forgiveness that should be taking place in the church family because, let's be honest, we're all going to sin this side of heaven. Yes, of course, Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin and to take the punishment for sin on the cross at Calvary. But until he comes back, those who are waiting for him and who are trusting him, we're still going to sin. Sin's presence still remains. And so forgiving our brothers and sisters in our church who wrong us will be an ongoing pattern, just as they hopefully in turn forgive us. Colossians chapter 3 says that as God's people, we are to bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. When we forgive, we're letting go of any anger and ill feeling that we might feel towards someone. We're letting go of any bitterness and resentment. And we come to understand that either in the cross of Jesus Christ or at the final judgment, God is going to take care of every sin that was committed against us. I want to say that I know that forgiveness can be hard. People can do wicked things against us. And the the process of forgiveness might not happen overnight. It can take time. I understand that. But I want to just take a moment to share some verses from Scripture which help us think about what it looks like to forgive someone. Romans 12 verse 19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. When we forgive someone, you see, we'll resist seeking revenge. First Thessalonians 5 says, Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. When we forgive, we won't return wrong for wrong. Luke chapter 6 says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. When we forgive someone, we'll want the best for them. We'll pray for them. Proverbs 24 says, Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Uh, when we forgive someone, we won't gloat when things go wrong for them. Romans 12, 18, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. When we forgive people, we will seek reconciliation as far as it depends on us. That's a a really crucial phrase. Really important. As far as it depends on us because sometimes uh, we'll have to forgive people who do not ask for 
our forgiveness. We have to forgive people when there's not the possibility of a restored relationship. Not everyone will ask for our forgiveness, but we must lay down our ill feeling towards them and hand over our anger to God. You see, love for enemy is at the center of the Christian faith. Romans 5 teaches us that it was while we were God's enemies that we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. We are God's enemies because of our sin, because of the sin that we were born in and the sins that we commit every day. And God has done everything necessary in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to move towards us in our brokenness and in our sinfulness. And if you're not here today, and and if you're here today and you're not a Christian, God invites you to respond in repentance to his forgiveness. That means to turn to God and turn away from your sin and to say sorry for it and to commit your life to living for Christ, the living Lord. We'd love to help you this morning if you uh, know that you're in need of that repentance, if you're not right with God, if you know that your sins have not been forgiven. There's a prayer on the back of the bulletin that you can pray on your own or you can pray with someone. Maybe a friend or the prayer team who will be here at the end of the service. Well, maybe you're already a Christian and you know that this point that Peter's making about forgiveness is for you. It's so easy in a building this size uh, to come Sunday by Sunday and sit on different floors from people that you know you need to forgive or who you need to seek forgiveness from. It's easy to be on different rotas and to be in different groups and to never deal with the issues between you and that person. One of the most famous passages in the Bible is the Lord's Prayer. But I wonder if you've ever taken notice of the verses that follow straight after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. You see, having just taught his followers to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, Jesus then goes on to explain why. Matthew 6, 14 to 15 say say this, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. These are hard words to hear, but they're very clear. If we don't let go of our forgiveness, we will not be forgiven by God. And so can I ask you, if you're struggling to forgive someone, Find help here in this church. Speak to a friend or your growth group leader or one of the elders. And let's talk about it. Let's get this resolved. Let's get it fixed. Let's see that forgiveness takes place. Instead of letting bitterness and resentment and distance grow, brothers and sisters in Christ are meant to love each other deeply at full stretch by offering forgiveness to one another and by seeking forgiveness. I think it's good to take some time to explain what forgiveness is and what verse 8 means. Uh, because It could be a verse that uh, somebody might use wrongly. It could be a verse that an abuser might use to silence a victim so they can keep on abusing. As we've seen, that's not what this verse is about. For an abuser to use the verse in this way is a misuse of this verse. And equally, somebody who's been abused should not feel under any obligation to, uh, or, or any anxiety about coming forward because of their experience. In this church, we take abuse very seriously. 
You'll see in all the bathrooms there are posters up around this building which explain what you can do if you're the victim of abuse. We've got people on hand who can help. Love covering a multitude of sins is not an excuse for abusers to continue to do what they're doing. And the elders in this church will not tolerate it. This is not a verse for abusers to hide behind. Let me summarize by saying that verse 8 is about love that is deep and forgiving. It is out of deep love, a deep loving attitude towards each other that we will forgive the sins of our brothers and our sisters in our church. Uh, We'll let resentment fade. We'll not avoid them on Sundays. We will instead step towards them in love and forgive them. Forgiving people is a deeply loving thing to do. Even though it is hard and even though it can take time, failing to forgive is deeply unloving. The second way that we're to relate to one another in the church as uh, heaven remains on the horizon is with glad hospitality. It's there down in verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word hospitality. Uh, Maybe it depends on your experience. Uh, Maybe it depends on whether you are the one giving the hospitality or whether you're on the receiving end. Maybe you think about the stress of getting meals ready or dusting or hoovering, uh, at least the bits where the people are going to be coming as they come to your house. The Bible's definition of hospitality, though, is, is very clear. Uh, the word comes from the Greek word philozenia, which is two words put together. Uh, philio meaning to love and xenia meaning foreigner or stranger. Love of the stranger, love of the foreigner, That's what hospitality uh, truly means. And I think if we're honest, many of us uh, don't think that way when we think of the word hospitality. I think for many of us, the way we live our lives uh, looks more like we think that hospitality means love of people we know, uh, love of our friends, love of people like us, rather than love of the stranger uh, or love of the foreigner. It's easy to love people that we know, uh, to have people in our home who we know is, is straightforward usually. But it is for many of us much harder and more daunting to love foreigners and strangers, uh, to love those in the church that we don't know. But if we only love people who are our friends and who are known to us and who are like us in the church, then we're not following the biblical command for hospitality. Love of our friends is not the biblical definition of hospitality. It's love of the stranger, love of the foreigner. And notice from verse 9, would you, uh, that we're to do it without grumbling. Part of me wonders whether Peter made a missionary journey to Scotland that wasn't recorded in the New Testament. If grumbling was a competitive sport, Scottish people would be the top of the world. The human heart is a complaint factory. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Peter is concerned not just about the act of having people in your home. He's concerned about the way we do it. And when it comes to hospitality, there are so many things that we could complain about. People staying too long, not taking their shoes off, leaving a mess, not lifting the seat, taking too much food, etc., etc., 
But listen to what Proverbs 23 says. Do not eat the food of a stingy host. Do not crave his delicacies. For he is the kind of person who is always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the little you've eaten and will have wasted your compliments. Proverbs 23. We're not to be like the stingy host in the proverb. Rather, we should offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Just as shallow love is fake love, so grumbling hospitality is fake hospitality. Peter's instruction is that we're to offer glad hospitality to one another. Maybe you think you're no good at it. It's just not your, your gift. Well, in the Bible, even giving someone a cup of water is commended. The bar is not high. There is no command in anywhere in Scripture saying that you have to make every meal from scratch. There's no command that there has to be three to five courses and napkins and all that sort of stuff. Hospitality is an attitude, not a performance. Rosaria Butterfield has written a fantastic book about hospitality that I would thoroughly recommend if you've not read it. It is mind-altering and category-shifting on the subject of hospitality. I think we should definitely get this in the bookstall. If you've not read it, I'd encourage you to read it. It's called Hospitality Comes with a House Key. And throughout the book, she uses this phrase, radically ordinary hospitality, which she describes like this. Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Do you get the point? We offer hospitality not to show off, but to show love. It's not rare, but something that we do regularly. God has given you cups and plates and spoons and forks and oven and tables and chairs to seek to make strangers neighbors and neighbors the family of God. To show people what love and acceptance really likes, it looks like. And I think as we move towards two services, hospitality is going to be incredibly important for us. As we make space for new people to join us on a Sunday, our hospitality, our love of the stranger is going to be the relational glue that keeps things together. In a big church family, it can feel like there's lots and lots of strangers. Hospitality makes the church feel smaller and things feel more familiar. And it is not a job for the select few. It's a job for virtually everyone. If you're a Christian here today, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 is for you. Again, in Rosaria's book, she says this, the Christian life makes no room for independent agents, onlookers, renters. We who are washed in the blood of Christ are stakeholders. Now the question I've been wrestling with is, why is this command here? Why does offering hospitality feature in Peter's list about how we're meant to live while heaven is still on the horizon? Well, it goes back to the situation that these readers find themselves in. Remember, they are exiles in an unbelieving world. They're foreigners. They're not accepted by the pagan world around them. They experience suffering and hatred because they're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a world that is hostile to Christianity, Christians do not experience love of the foreigner, philozenia. No, Christians experience the opposite of philozenia, xenophobia, hatred of the stranger 
and the foreigner. And Peter's point is that it's one thing to be unloved and marginalized in a world that hates Christianity out there, but it's another thing to be unloved and marginalized and kept at a distance by fellow believers within the church. People who have experienced the greatest demonstration of forgiveness and welcome the world has ever known in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you, as I've been asking myself this week, in the way that we use our home and our stuff, do we practice love of the foreigner, the stranger, or in fact, are we really demonstrating hatred of the stranger, philozenia or xenophobia? Let me be really plain about this. We are a church made up of different skin colors and different nationalities. In your home, around your table, do you only have people who have the same skin color as you and are the same nationality as you? We've got people at different life stages. Are the people that you welcome into your home, that you love, just people at the same life stage as you? People that it's convenient to have in your house. If you are married, do you ever have single people in your house? Do you ever have widowed people in your house? Do you ever have divorced people in your house? Do you ever have people in your house who are poorer than you? Or do you kind of secretly look down your nose at them? Do you ever have people in your house that are richer than you? Or is that a wee bit of a sore point? Have you got a bit of a, bit of a chip on your shoulder about that? Maybe you never get invited to people's homes. Maybe you could get the ball rolling by opening up your home and seeing where that takes you. If you have known forgiveness for your sins, if you have known God's loving welcome into his family, God's word commands that you offer hospitality to the stranger in these last days. Now, I realize that there are certain life events where it's not possible to offer hospitality, and instead you need to be a receiver of hospitality. I think it would be massively unfair if we all descended on Andrew and Jenny's house this Sunday lunchtime. Okay? The time of a newborn is not the time to descend on someone's house. Okay? Ill health, other, other acute issues in life that can prevent us from doing that. But for the, for the vast majority of us, hospitality is not something that we can argue away. It's not something that we can say, nah, it's not my job. Those of us who are maybe a bit more introverted amongst us and who are a bit more, a bit more obsessive about tidiness, uh, we're not excused from hospitality. We just need to prepare for it a bit differently than others might. Those of us who can't cook, we're not excused from hospitality. Did you know that you can offer a cup of tea and a bit of toast in the name of Jesus? Tea and toast and a listening ear, that is hospitality. Glad hospitality should be a, an ordinary part of our Christian walk and ultimately it's a matter of the heart. Are we willing to show love to the stranger in this church family as the person that God has made us to be with the stuff that he has given us to steward? 
brothers and sisters in Christ, as we step out into 2019, let us love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And let us offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Charlotte Chapel must be a place of deep and forgiving love and glad hospitality. May God grant us the grace to do as he commands. Let's pray. Lord God, for many of us in this room, we have known your forgiveness. We've known your forgiveness of our sins through the death of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have gladly welcomed us uh, into your family. And Father, as those who have been forgiven so much, would you cause us to respond with deep, forgiving love? As those who have been shown extravagant welcome, who've been loved by you and brought into your family, would you cause us to respond with glad hospitality that strangers would be welcome in this church family? We ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.